0: this is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Woodundryland, and this is The Full Story. It's been a huge year for literature, with new work from some of Australia's best-known authors, including Anna Funder, Richard Flanagan and Christos Chalkas. 2023 has also had its share of controversy, including news that generative AI is scraping many Australian authors' work without their consent. Today, Culture Editor Steph Harmon and Deputy Culture Editor Sean Kane talk me through all of that and much more as we wrap the best books of the year. It's Tuesday, the 19th of December. So, Sean, you asked a lot of critics what the best book of the year was. What was one that made a buzz? Right. Well, um, quite a few people um,
3: among our sort of pool of critics chose Anam by Andre Dow. He's a human rights lawyer and a writer, and this is actually his debut, which is a really interesting blend of memoir and fiction. So, it's looking at an unnamed human rights lawyer with a partner (laughs) called Lauren and Andre has a partner called Lauren Um, and uh, his grandfather was a Catholic intellectual who was imprisoned for 10 years without trial or charge in Vietnam. And Andre becomes a father and this is sort of the event that the book hinges on, though it is very clear that he spent a lot of his life pondering his family story, which sort of spans from Vietnam to Paris, to Cambridge and to Melbourne and kind of examines just sort of what the fallout of the Vietnam War was on different family members. Um, so his grandfather was allied with the Americans, and uh, his older brother was a communist. Mm. And so Andre's sort of looking at all the different paths that members of his family took and sort of looks at reconciliation and forgiveness and a sense of belonging when, you know, many generations of your family are migrants. Um, It is officially a novel, but it's obviously one that's rooted in something that's very real and not imagined. And actually, this is something that I've noticed a lot of the books I'm talking about today. They are books that play with our expectation of what fiction does and what memoir does. But yeah, it's a hugely interesting book, really beautifully written, um, very confident for a debut. There's often sometimes with debuts, and especially when it's nonfiction or a fiction, nonfiction blend, there's sort of the book that someone was born to write. And this feels very much like this was the book that he had kind of bursting in -hmm. him for his
0: whole life. Wow. And Steph, it's been a decade since Miles Franklin winner Alexis Wright started writing her latest novel, Praiseworthy, and I know that that has made your
4: list today. Why? Look, I think any Alexis Wright novel is going to be a bit of an event. Um, So she's the only author to have won both the Stella Prize in 2018 for Tracker and the Miles Franklin in 2007 for Carpentaria. She actually started writing this one when she started Tracker, yes, a decade ago. And it's an epic, epic uh, undertaking. It's more than 700 pages. Definitely wouldn't recommend it (laughs) as a summer read, but it is Look, it's actually almost impossible to describe. There's a plot, but it's only semi-linear and the novel kind of plays with time itself. A 10-minute scene might go for like 80 pages. One sentence could go for... A page or two, um, she has this kind of trademark disregard for the confines of what a novel is, particularly what a Western novel might be. But to kind of put a little bit of plot in there, um, it's set in a remote Indigenous town um, in Northern Australia, which is named Praiseworthy. So it's the title of the book. Um, it gets engulfed by a giant haze and the haze represents both The climate crisis, but it's also related to or represents the ever-presence of ancestors who speak like a chorus throughout the book as well. There's big themes going on here. It's about the impact of colonisation and the climate crisis and successive failed government policies, particularly the intervention and the impact of kind of fear-mongering discourse about Indigenous Australia on particularly young people in those communities so what I've described there makes it sound extremely dry and very heavy, but, like, it's also very, very funny. There's a lot of satire in it. It's it's basically a very dark, rage-filled satire of the repeated failures and ignorance of white governments in Indigenous Australia. But there's little, you know, funny ideas in there too, like a character whose name is Aboriginal Sovereignty. That's his name because they're the two words that his dad likes saying the most. And there's a town mayor who becomes so obsessed with this assimilation that he slowly starts to turn white. So there's also, there's a lot of fury, but there's a lot of humour. And the way the story is told is it's, yes, it's challenging and it's cyclic and it's playing with time. But I think it's also intentionally quite frustrating to read. And I think she's trying to play with you know, what it is like to get stuck in these cycles of failed policy. She sort of, it feels like the the medium is the message a bit in her book as well, which it's challenging. She's not out there to please readers, but I think this is probably one of the most important books that's come out this year.
0: Hmm. Maybe one to pick up after the summer holidays then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, Sean, I interviewed Anna Funder about her book Wifedom earlier this year on the pod, and it's also made the critics' best list. Why is that, do you think?
3: Well, it's quite a unique and interesting book. Uh, so people might know Anna Funder for writing Stasiland, which was such a huge success a few years ago. And so Wifedom is a really strange, kind of biography of Eileen O'Shaughnessy, uh, also known as Eileen Blair, who was the wife of George Orwell, Mm. uh, the first wife of George Orwell, I should say. And basically, Anna Funder was going through a difficult period in her own life. She was perimenopausal. It was sort of post-Me Too. She was really casting a critical eye on her work-life balance and the balance of sort of parenting and housework in her own home with her husband and she sort of turned to George Orwell for kind of like insight into her own oppression and read loads of Orwell then went went and read six Orwell biographies which is not my idea of a, <laughs> a relaxing time um, but she did this and she was struck by the absence of Eileen from these stories and she came across these six letters that Eileen had written to her best friend and was sort of struck by how funny and witty and kind of lively she seemed in these letters. And so she kind of set herself the mission of uncovering who Eileen O'Shaughnessy was and the role that she played in Orwell's career. Because actually she did play a really important part. um, And this is often the case between, you know, with women who are kind of sidelined by history. There are women who are behind all the great men that go and do great things. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they met in 1935, got married in 1936, so really quick. Um, they then, 1937, went and uh, were embroiled in the Spanish Civil War. You know, obviously, Orwell very famously wrote about that in Homage to Catalonia. And she was, you know, really crucial in, you know, while he was out there fighting, she was working on propaganda. Uh, she was uh, getting provisions for the men. She was dealing with communications. She was getting transport of medical supplies, dodging spies. When he got shot, she cared for him. Him. she saved his manuscript from being destroyed which she was also typing herself. Mm. So there's all these like there's this huge involvement that she clearly had. There have been there's been a bit of controversy about this book because there are gaps. We don't really know very much about her and Anna Funder has used fiction to imagine some things mm. and to fill in those gaps. And it does make for a better story, but some people have called into question how well this is actually signposted in the book. So some people reading won't necessarily know what is fiction and what is fact in right. this book, but overall, as like a cohesive story, it, it you know it makes for a good tale. But there are some small things in there. So, just as as one small thing in homage to Catalonia, she mentions that Orwell says "my wife" thirty seven times, but never names Eileen, which she sort of takes as a kind of misogynist insult. But as other people have pointed out, it's probably partly to protect her in an incredibly dangerous situation to not be putting her name throughout. Mm. And she was, you know, being watched um, for her involvement. So I think, you know, it's it's, it's, it's all about her interpretation mm. um, and it is applying a very modern feminist lens to a woman that we don't know very much about and we don't know how she felt about certain things. There have been some more obvious Factual errors. For example, Orwell is described as being born in Burma. He was born in India. Um, And uh, the publishers have said that they will correct that. Um, There's also a reference to a woman called Celia Kirwan in the book. Orwell apparently had a one night stand with her, uh, according to this book, but um, her daughter is saying, actually, no, they never had sex. And I know this because of my mother's letters to her sister. Mm. Uh, They're asking for that to be removed as well. So it's not without controversy, this book, but. It is Anna Funda. It is beautifully written. But I think it does call into question how well signposted this blend of fact and fiction
0: is and should have been, perhaps. Mm. And also, I guess for that reason, perhaps calls into question the kinds of standards or rigor that's expected of a book like this. Is it fiction or is it, uh, you know, straight biography? Like it's it's kind of, it, when you blur those two worlds, is it, are the ethical sort of considerations also a bit murky as well, maybe?
3: Yes. And it does, I guess, small, little small things, like for example, getting Orwell's Place of birth wrong. That seems like a, it is. It is a small detail. It's, it's a matter of changing one word in the correction. But it's also such a fundamental biographical detail that you, you know, with all these other things that have come up with people saying actually no, that didn't happen, and that's been presented alongside facts. It does kind of call into doubt the rigor that went into this book. Whereas I think Anna Funder is kind of making a much more broad argument. Uh, for the invisibility of women like Eileen, Mm. that there is a kind of uh, moral duty that modern female authors like herself have to try and bring these women into the light and whether or not that always requires fact, some of which has been buried by history. Mm. You know, it it is indisputable that a lot of Orwell biographers were not interested simply in Eileen and made very little mention of her, mm. that she sort of sees
0: this book probably as, um, you know, efforts in a grander project. Mm. All right. Speaking of controversies, Steph, there were not just one, but two biographies of Australian author Frank Morehouse this year. Tell yes. us, Tell us
4: more about that. That's a generous use of the word controversy. <laughs> um, it was certainly, yeah, I mean, it is a bit of an event. It makes sense. Um, Morehouse did die midway through last year. so. But both of the writers of the two biographies, um, Catherine Lumby and Matthew Lamb, had started working on their books uh, years before. The one that I'm recommending only by virtue of it having come out earlier, so <laughs> I've read it, is Catherine Lumby's one. So just to give you a bit of background about Frank Morehouse, so he's he's one of Australia's best known authors and essayists. He wrote the Edith trilogy, which was Grand Days, Dark Palace, and Cold Light, and he wrote the memoir Martini. He was also a public intellectual associated with the progressive Sydney push movement. So champion of freedom of speech, of sexual liberation, and he made a really significant contribution to Australian culture, particularly um, his activism for writers' rights. So I was really interested to hear that in the 70s he'd spearheaded this copyright case that went all the way to the High Court, arguing that authors should be paid when their work is photocopied to study by students in unis. It was really interesting to read that because I read it while a similar fight was playing out this year. Thousands of Australian authors discovered that their books had been scraped without their permission and fed into generative AI training tools in mm. what Richard Flanagan called the biggest act of copyright theft in history. So that was really, really interesting to read that this year. But there's also a kind of a juicier side to uh, this biography too. I mean, Morehouse was, you know, part of this sexual liberation movement. He was an open cross dresser and a bisexual when homosexuality was illegal. And um, he gave Catherine Lumbee full access to everything in his archives and they sound really juicy. Um, I spoke to Catherine. She wrote a piece for us actually about writing this book and she told me this story and I was like, you have to include that. Um, She had asked him during the fact-checking phase to send a list of everywhere he'd ever lived and who he was in a relationship with at that time. And he sent it to her, but he'd added notes describing exactly what kind of sex they were having at the time as well. Oh <laughs> and she replied, way too much information, Frank. Wow. Um, <laughs> but living his life publicly was was a real part of who he was as well. And um, uh, yeah, so he died in in June last year. And He'd read all of the book except for the conclusion, which, you know, is obviously bittersweet for um for Catherine, but it's a beautiful book. And yes, and the Matthew Lamb one came out this month, similarly very substantial. It's actually the first of two. Um, and it comes at Morehouse from a different angle. It's it's um, probably more of a cultural history of the times and the people who shaped him. But they'd be great companion pieces for the Frank Morehouse stands out there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, sounds great! Just uh, you know, we've talked about such different books already, like you know biographies and genre bending books, and um, you know really books with really really big ideas in them that span seven hundred pages. <laughs> How do you sort through all of the best? books of the whole year to just distill it into just a few short ones what kinds of things are you looking for when you when you speak to critics about what what was best from the year
4: oh it's such an interesting process because we do these lists we do them for albums we do them for film we do them from tv for the books one we reach out to all of our books critics and all the people at the guardian we know are really good readers as well not necessarily just the people who write about books for us Mm. and we ask everyone to suggest three or four that were made their top list, um, then Shan and I will compile that into a list of about 40 to 50 books, including our own favourites, and we try to distill it into a, a list that's representative of, you know, there'll be some books that five or six people chose. They have to obviously go in. There'll be books that we make some captain's calls about as well, little favourites <laughs> that we want to get in. We also want to make sure that the list sort of showcases the breadth and brilliance of all different types of Australian writing.
3: Yeah, no, just to say that, yeah, I guess, you know, we're we're always taking into account things like genre um, and, uh, you know, gender and race. Uh, Even the size of the publishing house, you sort of don't want to have a list that's just, you know, all Penguin Random House, you know. I'd much rather read these lists and not see the same names again and again. And it's often when a critic comes back and says, oh, there's this, you know, little book from, you know, Giramondo or, you know, uh, University of Queensland Press that's amazing and they really want to, you know, convey to you how much they love this little thing that you might have missed and you're like that's what I want on the list tell me why I should buy that yeah so it's not just it's not just the biggest hitters it's um it's a real mix there are certain books that kind of end up setting some kind of national conversation or you know making a dent I'd I'd say wifedom is one of them Mm. um that you know it would almost be making a statement not to include so that sort of thing is sometimes taken into account um but you just kind of want a good blend of surprises and Also, there are people that, uh, you know, readers are expecting to see and you kind of have to also meet that
4: expectation as well. Mm. But I would say, like, there's not one book that's making a list that I wouldn't stand behind this year. Mm. You know, it's like they're all brilliant as well. There's so many different criteria you can judge a book on and there's there's not going to be... You know, ever a list that everyone agrees with, and that's kind of the fun as well. So we like to open it up for the comments, so that the readers can be like, "Why would you pick this?" One? <laughs> Sorry, that my impression of a reader is not very generous. <laughs> <different. laughs>
0: Sean, you went on a walk with Christos Chalkas, who is the author of our next book that we are talking about, The In-Between, which you called his most tender novel by far. Why was yes. that? Yes, because all of his other novels are not tender at all. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no. um, I have to say, it was weird. when we say walk with, we have a, an interview series that... Um, Uh, is called Walk With, where we send an interviewer and uh, some kind of notable, usually a cultural figure on a walk and we do the interview at the same time. It was just very funny to me having it described as I went on a walk with (laughs) Christos. I did do that, but it was for The Guardian. Um, And, uh, yeah, for his latest novel, and actually I'm really pleased it was for this novel just because I think I love it the most um, of all his books and I really love books like Barracuda, the Slap, which was obviously such an enormous book. I was a bookseller when The Slap came out, and wow. you would, we're just selling it like Twilight. You know, you'd just be handing it out again. Like it just made such a huge impact. But this book, The In Between, is really nice. It basically follows two older gay men called Perry and Ivan. Um, they're in their 50s. And at first class, they sort of seem like complete opposites to each other. Um, so Perry's this sort of academic. He's a bit you know, he's a bit stuffy, he's a bit bourgeois. He sort of spent a decade in a secret relationship with a married man in Europe and he's back in Australia and sort of fresh from the heartbreak of that affair ending. And then Ivan is a gardener. He's he's a very working class. Uh, He's got a daughter from a relationship that he uh, had with a woman when he was very young before he was out. And he's also hurting from the end of a relationship he was having with a younger man who was working with him. Mm. So there's often this very... It's sort of a signature quality of Sulcus novels, this sort of very earthy, kind of almost repulsive. Well, he's uh, obsessed with smells. He but loves smells, smells, things. <laughs> yeah, <100 laughs> smells. And they're sort of like very kind of vivid and gutsy kind of books about sex and violence and class and it makes for really vivid reading but it can also be really relentless in some of his books and some of them can just be very miserable and it can be result in people getting a bit tired of his books, I think. But... You know, there is sex and there is violence in this book, but it's also really romantic and there's a very, Mm. you you used the word tender earlier, there is a really tender quality to this romance that makes it feel so distinct from his other books. And I was so struck, I think I was about halfway through the book, where I just suddenly felt really anxious and I realised it was because I wanted them to be together so badly. (laughs) I just wanted Mm. these old folks to be happy. Um, (laughs) And so there is a section in the middle of the book um, that is set around a dinner party
4: and it's one of the most brilliant depictions Oh, it's so That's good, isn't it? No spoilers. Yeah. yeah, I would just say it's, it's just it's, like it's, it's one of those scenes that I think about every time I have a dinner party. Yes, you will never think life. about yeah. dinner
3: parties ever the same oh, way gosh. again because he's nailed what having a dinner party is. If you've sort of got a certain kind of middle Australian dotted around your table, yeah. Right. And um, one of our critics who wrote about it for us, she said that um, you know she could imagine just this part as a brilliant play. Mm. And actually I totally think she's right. It sort of stands alone and it kind of wrong-foots you. You sort of are expect, you, you know, going through this party at all yeah, I won't say too much about it, but they're sort of covering, you know, class and gender and COVID and politics and the media. And in this conversation is everyone's getting steadily more drunk. Um, and Christos actually said to me that he was told after his um, his editor read it, she said, oh, you'll never be Im- invited to any dinner party again. <laughs> and I can kind of see why I wouldn't invite him to my dinner party. Oh, <laughs> he's very nice, but I don't want him writing
0: about it. Yeah, sort of <laughs> interesting. It makes it sound like he's done for dinner parties what um, Anna Funders, Done for all well with wife. In a way, you never really think about all well the same after reading. <laughs> yeah, yeah just forever change. Yeah. Next, the hot mess millennial novels. Steph, this year was the year where the hot mess millennial novel hit peak (laughs) saturation for you. Tell us about that.
4: Yeah. So, I mean, this isn't a trend that started this year by any means. I think people have dubbed it the Sally Rooney effect um, (laughs) and Conversations with Friends came out in 2017. But I felt like this year, particularly in Australian publishing, it really, yeah, it Hit peak. peak.
0: Yeah. Can you define what a hot mess millennial novel is for those of us who sure. haven't read
4: Sally Rooney? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, I mean, there's a, I guess the through line would be it's usually about a privileged woman in her mid 20s or mid 30s who hasn't got life quite worked out, is living a bit messily. is lacking stability, is making poor choices, Mm. um, often about romance, um, or is having some other kind of crisis. And she's usually overthinking everything. She's quite disaffected. She's quite self-absorbed and sometimes unlikable. So basically very relatable. (laughs) Um, And an untrustworthy narrator is kind of a key um, part of these books as well. And, you know, I think Fleabag has a lot to answer for here. Um, <laughs> and Lena Dunham, surely. Yes, Lena Dunham too. And locally Diana Reid, I think she was our Sally Rooney when her um, books came out one after another. I think there is something going on. I think obviously these books have been really commercially successful, but it's possible just that the lives of young women are continue to be existentially fraught. Um, and I think people like exploring that. Um, but so, yeah, I wanted to name check a few of the Australian ones that I really liked because there was... A great many of them and there were some standouts and some meh, you know. Um but (laughs) interestingly official guardian review.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It was rated meh. (laughs) Um,
4: (laughs) The four that I chose were all debuts, which I only just realized. So I don't know what that has to say about the genre too, but maybe it's that thing of the first book you write, you write what you know. So Mm. um there's something happening there where these books are really drawn from the experience. Um, the first one is probably the most meta, literally called Sad Girl Novel um, <laughs> by Pink Finkelmeyer. So this is about a 20-year-old trying to write her own sad girl novel in a year um, and the complication arises when she becomes obsessed with her literary agent. So it's it's really fun. It gets to have a lot of fun with the tropes of the genre and poke fun at the literary industry as well. There was another one called But the Girl by Jessica Yu. So uh, this one, again, about a young woman trying to write a book. Um, this time she's in Scotland and she's working on a thesis about Sylvia Plath, who, as one of our writers pointed out, is perhaps the originator of the sad girl <laughs> novel. Um, this one's a bit more uh, chewy. It's got bigger themes going on, I think, more about race and privilege and literary theory to a certain extent, but it actually got picked up by the UK it's been published there and very zeitgeisty author, Brandon Taylor's publishing house, has picked it up in the US as well. So that's got a bit of buzz. Mm. Green Dot. I don't know if Jane or Sean, either of you read this one. No. Very interesting title because it appears, for all intents and purposes, to have been set at The Guardian. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's written by a woman called Madeline Gray. It's about a woman working as a content moderator in the Australian Bureau of a Progressive Global <laughs> Online Only Newsroom. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh,
0: did she Did you a, lot of,
4: <laughs> a lot of us were, like, guessing who each of the characters were based on. Um, oh, gosh. Yeah, it was pretty fun. The narrator falls in love with a senior journalist who's married and that's the kind of complicated relationship that she has to navigate. Um, really fun for navel-gazing, that one. And then the very online one was called Search History by Amy Taylor. So this is, again, about a woman in her late 20s, um, but she meets a man on not the apps, but in an actual bar in an IRL meet cute. Mm. Um, And so she does what any normal woman would do and spends way too long Googling everything about him and finds out way too much and including that his ex had died a year before and he hasn't told her. So the whole book is her trying to navigate knowing way too much um, and pretending she knows nothing. And it's just a really great Really fun premise, um, very pacey, very well executed. Yeah, uh, has some heavier themes as well in there, but I just, I just thought this was a definite one that I'd pick for the summer read.
0: Yeah, that sounds great. And they all sound, even though they you know you call them all hot mess millennial novels, they all sound like quite different and yeah, like they traverse quite different modern themes, which is nice. Yeah,
4: I think that's why I picked these four in particular. They've all got something a bit more to chew on beyond just the general hot mess millennial.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which are all sort of
3: instantly recognisable because they've all generally got the same colour or colour scheme or font. Yeah. Oh, or, really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's kind of strange when you see them Boldly all on cup- a
4: table yeah. <laughs> in a bookshop. It's um, like an illustrated woman that uh, our colleague Rafka Tuma described as well-dressed and distressed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, it's kind of like the genre as
0: well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. And so we spoke a little bit before about how your critics and you both, together compile a best of list for the year. But I'm interested in, I mean, you both obviously read a lot for pleasure as well. So how do you both decide for yourselves what your personal favourite book of the year is, Sean,
3: Oh, goodness. It will vary so much for me, for beauty. I used to work, so I'm deputy culture editor here in Australia, but I used to work just on books in the UK, in the Mm. London office. And um, it always became this slightly torturous you had a slightly torturous relationship with reading there because reading was work, but also you got your Mm. job on that desk because you loved reading. And so it kind of changed your relationship with books completely. And you had Mm. to kind of always be reading something old or something that had nothing to do with work. In order to keep yourself a little bit sane, because yeah. <laughs> you'd end up just feel like you're reading, you know, you're doing work out of hours basically, and so uh, often it'll be a book that kind of sneaks up on me. I think like my favorite book on, in a lot of years will be completely different to the book I will have chosen the previous year. It'll be something that sort of startled me. I think it's, and certainly this year, what I chose kind of blew me away. And I actually read it because our review came in from our critic and she raved about it so much. I was like, I think I need to read this. And Mm. I think she was absolutely right. So I think I need to find out what your favourite book is now. (laughs) What was it for you this year? Uh, So it's Question 7 by Richard Flanagan. Mm. And actually, interestingly, some overlap with Anam and a little bit with wifedom, I would say, in a way, Um, because it's unpicking how history shapes us as people and what leads to us being the people that we are. And so if if people don't know, so Richard Flanagan, obviously very famous Australian author. uh, He won the Man Booker Prize for Narrow Road to the Deep North uh, a few years ago. Uh, And uh, if you've read that, uh, obviously uh, it's about uh, prisoners of war in Japan. And actually his own father was a prisoner of war in Japan for three years. Uh, He was interned as a POW in Ohama camp in Japan during the Second World World war um and uh, he was freed because uh, essentially because uh, the atomic bombs were dropped on hiroshima and nagasaki because the war ended so that was when he got his freedom and then 16 years later richard was born and he is basically using this book it's sort of like a book-length essay that blends in very biographical you know history uh thought his personal thoughts his imagination some kind of fictive writing, to basically explore the psychic implication of what does it mean to be alive because so many people died. He's drawing a direct link between his father surviving the war and being able to come home and have him with the fact that thousands and thousands of people died Mm. in Japan. Mm. Um, And it's sort of about, I guess really deep history and it, you know, it contains lots of glimpses of ideas that he's explored in his novels. So obviously I just spoke about Narrow Road, but also Death of a River Guide in particular. Um, and the, the reason it is so impressive, I think, is because it's there's such clear depth of thought that has gone into every single word in this book. It's obviously something that's very painful to him mm. and deeply existential to him, um, but he makes it so very universal to the reader that it you know, it feels kind of profound. You almost feel grateful that he's done this thinking. Mm -hmm. And it's clearly so much work and kind of emotional pain has gone into it that you do end up sort of coming out of it and kind of feeling grateful that there are people out there doing this kind of thinking because it's so the clarity of thought in it is so deeply moving that, you know, it's kind of like how, you know, you can come out of a movie and go, oh that was amazing and I kind of want to be a better person because of that like you come out of a you know really good film or you know theater or you know it's like the way the best art can move us and I it's one of those books that you finish reading and you go blimey like (laughs) I really don't need to go be a better person I'm I'm (laughs) changed yeah you will feel changed from it and it's not it's not hard to read it's not you know and it's it's just it touches on so many things he makes these really amazing links between the atomic bomb and hg wells and tasmania and the aboriginal population of tasmania he just does these amazing things you just go god you're so well read and so much thought has gone into this book that you just come out of it going,
0: God, I'm rubbish at writing. (laughs) Steph, that's going to be pretty hard to beat. Mm. Um, How do you choose what your favourite book of each year is? Well, my
4: answer this year is so much sillier than that. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. We can have silly and (laughs) mind-blowing. I mean, I think I I can tell it's my favourite book because by the end of the year I've bought at least three copies of it for other people in my life. And I think for me in particular, I... At the moment, I have found myself gravitating towards humor. Mm. Um, and and that is why my answer is going to be vastly different to Sean's. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think my favorite book this this year. I mean, there was there was three that I had like I've given to people already. One was a a brilliant collection of um queer pop culture-laced poetry from Madison Godfrey called Dress Rehearsals, which has brilliantly funny moments and I also found really moving. Um And Melbourne writer Ronnie Scott wrote a new novel called Shirley, which was absolutely gorgeous, kind of set just uh, at the tail end of the bushfires and just before the pandemic's about to take hold in Melbourne. And I just think it was observationally just such a brilliant book, and I've given that to a few people. But the one that I'm picking out is this absolute oddball little memoir called I'd Rather Not by Robert Skinner, who I'd never heard of. Um, he was the editor of a short story magazine called The Canary Press in Melbourne, which it turns out isn't something that you want to be doing for a job unless you're okay with uh, living in a shed at one point, a van at another <laughs> point, and for a stint at the bottom of a ditch in a dog park. And his <laughs> memoir is kind of just, it's its so short and delicious. It's um, its little vignettes and they're so funny and his so absurd that you know you feel like he's absolutely got to be exaggerating some of these stories, but you forgive him for it because they're so so funny. His humor reminds me of, um. I don't know if this will mean anything. To, do you guys remember Jack Handy? He he used to write these little books called Deep Thoughts, which were just basically one-liner jokes, and everyone used to give them to, to each other as gifts in the late 90s. Um, his humour <laughs> is very, very much Jack Handy humour, um, and I just I found this book so warm and so delightful and so absurd, and it made me laugh out loud, which doesn't happen a lot when I read. So that was my fave.
0: That's amazing. I mean, you know, whether it's um, wanting to laugh out loud or be blown away and change forever and want to be inspired to be a better person, I guess books can, you know, put you in lots of different movies. We're approaching very, very slowly the summer holidays. And I think for a lot of us, we just want to read something that is fun and not too difficult, but also just something that we can relax to over the break. Do you both have a fun summer read that
4: you've saved up for the holidays? Actually, I'm so keen to hear what Sean's answer to this is because we haven't talked about it. Well, um, it's very, it's, yeah, it's not fun.
0: <laughs> oh, <well>. oh Sean!
2: Sean!
3: <laughs> you go, first. um
4: Mine is Beasting by Paul Murray, which has been recommended to me by so many different people who I respect including and admire. Me. And I've, I've never read him before, <laughs> but um, every review I've read of this book makes it sound just absolutely fantastic. So I, have, I bought this book a couple of months ago and it's just sitting there waiting until I don't have to read for work. So literally in two weeks, I get to pick it up and read it. I'm so excited.
3: It's so enormous and it's so great. It, oh. Like one of those, uh, yeah, completely. He was one of the you know sixteen different authors called Paul on this year's uh, Booker <laughs> Prize. <laughs> almost the weird number of polls. Um, but I I was a little disappointed that he didn't win. Yeah, it's got one of the best opening lines in a novel I've read in a long time. Oh no,
0: spoilers! No, it say what it is. I can't remember. Off the <laughs> Wait, top <of> my head. <laughs> Steph is waiting to open it. Don't tell her yet. Um, Sian, what was what's your summer read for this year? So sometimes I like to use the Christmas period, to uh,
3: give myself a little project. And so last year I felt that I'd perhaps unfairly maligned Martin Scorsese, been a bit too harsh on some of his films, so I tasked myself with watching a lot of Scorsese. I will just say that my opinion of Scorsese has not changed at all. <laughs> um, but I am also quite known for my controversial opinions about Charles Dickens and I decided that perhaps I just read Dickens when I was too young and didn't get it. So Oh, my I am gosh, son, I didn't know this about you. Yeah, and I'm currently a quarter of the way through A Tale of Two
4: Cities. Wow. So, what are you thinking? Are you liking it finally?
3: I think I like it more than I did. I think he does blather on a bit. It does feel like he's trying to fill page space. It's not like Dumas who used to get paid by the line so he'd just write loads of dialogue so he could get paid more for his stories. Um, It's sort of, yeah, I I don't know. I don't know if Dickens is for me, to be honest. I know that's. You know, but you know, I've really said so that. Martin Funny, Scorsese's that. crap on this podcast. So yeah, <laughs> come lot, at me. a lot of
4: <laughs> a lot of um, context too. We're actually putting together a big summer read series where we've asked all of our bookish um, nerds, I say with love, to select. Um, the 15 best of all time summaries across romance, thriller, sci fi fantasy, celebrity memoirs, and funny books. And I keep jamming in Dickens into any category I can. <laughs> and it keeps slowly getting removed from each of the lists. <laughs> <So. just> me <laughs> secretly deleting it. But yeah, if you're looking for a good summary, I think we're going to be publishing them um, later December, early January.
0: Amazing. Well, thank you both so much for your time and happy reading over the summer break. Thanks thank for having me. That was Guardian Australia's culture editor Steph Harmon and Deputy Culture Editor Sean Kane. This episode was produced by Alison Chan and Joe Koning, who also did the sound design, mixing, and wrote our theme music. The executive producer was Hannah Park. Don't forget to subscribe or follow Full Story wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also leave us a review. I'm Jane Lee. Thanks for listening.